We're rolling. We're rolling Orzabal. Roll- <laughs> We're rolling bowling. We're rolling Orzabal. Hello, everybody. It's me, DJ Crystal Clear, with you. For you, doing another, my second episode of Original Versus Cover. Here at the world-famous, as it should be, studios in Crooklyn, New York. With the... I can never say that word, so I'm not going to say it. With the amazing and uh, fantastic Intimidable. Is that how you say it? Intimidable? Intimidable? Uh, well, um, uh, inimitable? Inimitable? I don't In- know. Un- untenable? Untenable. It gives, Un- me, <laughs> <laughs> it gives me a headache. Anyway, inexplicable. 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 <laughs> I'm, here, <laughs> I'm here with the absolute inexplicable <laughs> Paul Berlino, <laughs> my engineer, And uh, Dr. Paul Berlino here, the engineer and proprietor of As It Should Be Studios. How's it going, Paul? Yo. He's my special guest today for episode two. And uh, I'm very excited because he has a bunch of covers that will probably, not not probably, they'll definitely blow everybody's lid right off the cover because um, I don't, ooh, cover, how about that? Uh, Because he didn't tell me ahead of time and I told him not to tell me ahead of time so that I can be just as surprised as you are. So I'm very excited. We'll have a couple of good ones. We don't want to, we don't want to oversell, but I have a couple of good ones. A couple of good ones, no doubt. Um, yeah. So for those of you who missed the first episode, go back and listen to it, please, because <laughs> it will cover the criteria that I use to qualify, quantify, and rate the originals versus the covers. Um, basically, it's you know me picking what I like and telling you which one is better. But always, you're left to your own devices to make up your own mind. Uh, at the end of my little spiel, you'll hear 60 seconds of each one back-to-back, and I encourage you to listen to the entire song so that you totally get it. So that's my spiel, I guess. So let's get rolling. Do you want to go first, Paul? Since you're my guest, I'll let you go first. <laughs> sure. Okay, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start out I'm gonna start out light, L-I-T-E, because... <laughs> um, yeah, I'm not going to bring out the big guns just yet, right? We have to we have to build up build to something. Up, build up to it, yes. Um, uh, so the, this first one I'm going to mention is a song called Seven and Seven Is. Now, Seven and Seven Is was a track originally written by Arthur Lee and recorded by his band Love in 1966. And it was on their second album, De, De Capo, De Capo, however you pronounce that. I don't know. I'm not sure. Yeah. De Capo, I don't <laughs> <Duh>. know. <laughs> but... Um, you know, Arthur Lee always has these weird-ass titles for songs. There's Alone Again, Or, which actually is a Brian McLean song, but Arthur Lee is the one who said we should put Or at the end just to... Oh, really? Just to fuck everybody up, yeah. Oh, shit, I didn't know. Yeah, and, um, but Seven and Seven is, what the hell does that mean? A good drink? It is a good drink. Nope, you know oh. what that means. What does that mean? Arthur Lee, his birthday is on the 7th, March 7th, and he had a girlfriend at the time whose birthday was on March 7th. Oh, Wow. So so the song's called Seven and Seven Is. <laughs> he was one crazy black dude. So is is what? Like it, but still, like... I don't know. Is love? It's a lot I mean, of acid. I what's his girlfriend? It's a lot of acid, man. Yeah, no, I, he, yeah, no, yeah, that guy, he was crazy. Actually, I saw them live once, and he went, he would go on long diatribes between songs. Blah, 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 Jimi Hendrix, I was the first black hippie, and blah, 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 and everybody ripped everything off from me. He would go on, and then then they would start a song, and he would be like, barely able to sing anymore. Was this when you were in California? Yeah, this would have been, yeah, this was a long, this was, 
yeah, it was years years ago. Years but ago. um, but he he was old enough to where he kind of had deteriorated. The band sounded kick ass though. Wow. <laughs> he had a bunch of kids who knew how to get the '60s sound. But anyway, so I'm I digressing majorly because the cover version that we want to discuss also is by Alice Cooper. Ooh. And this is from 1981. So this is sort of post. Uh, significance. <laughs> well, Alice Cooper was, well, or I should I say he was sort of at the, the, the rock bottom of any period of his, uh, of his career. Yeah, he kind of, because the thing is he went through the 70s as a solo, well, not the 70s, he went through the latter half of the 70s as a solo artist, and but he just kind of went down, 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 down with each album during that period, and it bottomed out after Flush the Fashion when he did this album, uh, Special Forces, that had no hits on it, on it, but right. it was a total electronic kind of techno-y kind of album. A lot of kind of shit on it. What year was that? 1981. Oh, God. And the second song on the album, his, 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 is his <laughs> techno-y cover of Seven and Seven Is. That is crazy. Yeah. And... Oh, my God. I think that's probably the first version of that song I ever heard. Well, because it was Alice Cooper. Or, yeah. You know, I didn't have any love albums yet in 81, but I was buying the Alice, Alice Cooper, Cooper albums records. as they were coming out. Right. Wow. And, uh, yeah, so, you know, the love version, you probably know it. It's really garagey, kind of proto-punky. Yeah. You know, really kind of aggressive kind of thing with a... Uh, the way the drums are, it's like a motorboat sort of drum right. pattern that really lends itself to the techno, oh, techno. sort of kind yeah. of thing that Alice Cooper did to it. Oh, so he invented techno then. Techno drumming. <laughs> Arthur Lee. <laughs> Arthur Lee. Well, that's what Arthur Lee would tell yeah, that's you. That's what he would say. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Well, actually, evidently, or apparently, not evidently, apparently, Snoopy, the drummer of love, did have to be shown the part by, by Arthur Lee. Oh, word? Oh. Yeah, he was having trouble, and Arthur kind of sat down and went, well, this is how the part goes. But Snoopy played it on the record. Oh, interesting. Hmm. Yeah. For those of you who don't know about Love, that band, it was led by this kookaboo named Arthur Lee. <clears throat> and as Paul just said, um, the way that he ranted and raved at that show. So I learned about Love through my cousin Gene, who I've talked about before. And he was like, yeah, man, he was the first black hippie. Then my cousin, he was the first black hippie, da 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 And I was yeah. like, really? Okay. All right, whatever. First famous one, maybe. First famous <laughs> one, yeah. And uh, listened to a bunch of the records, and I just I just sort of glossed over it because it really didn't speak to me, a lot of it. Um, you know, it's like... Yeah, it's dark. It's, it's kind of like the Doors, where the themes are mostly dark. It's not. It's not peace and love and flowery shit yeah, at all. Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't hippie. It, it re- now thinking about it, it reminds me of what Pete Townsend said about the first time he went to hate Ashbury, <laughs> where he was like, you know, everybody was ugly and had zits, and it was not beautiful girls running around topless and all that. It stuff. was spotty. <laughs> the spotty of spots on the face. They were spotty and grotty. Yes. Um, yeah. So yeah, Arthur Lee. Wow. Well, that's a good one. Yeah. Well, but I also want to point out that um, other significant covers of this song, uh, Electric Prunes, which is not too out of left field, hmm. um, and The Ramones, was an all, which isn't all that out of left field, but apparently Rush did a cover of this song. Say what? <laughs> I've never heard it. <laughs> I, have, I, I can't speak Rush? from experience. I can't Oof. validate this with, in any way, but so I, so I understand. So you've been told. <laughs> so I've been told. <clears throat> Yeah. Well, I definitely wouldn't know because everybody knows that I do not like, I don't like Rush. I just, you know, 
I grew up at a time when uh, fucking Tom Sawyer was on the radio every five seconds. Yeah. And it just made me grow to hate them. And Getty Lee's nasal. And yeah, so come at me, bro. All you Rush fans. <laughs> Although. I'll, I'll duke it out with you. I will. I used to hate Rush myself. Kind of probably for the same reasons. And also I'm not... I, I tend to be really, really picky about... Pro- I don't hate Prague outright, but there's very little Prague I can deal with. And uh, Rush can be really proggy. Yes. And uh, have you seen the documentary, Beyond the Lighted Stage? No. I think that's what it's called. I have not. I've heard about it, but I didn't see it. I do want to see it, but I, I haven't seen it. I highly recommend it. It's, it's, it's... You don't have to like Rush. Oh, to okay. like this, you when you in fact you might kind of like them after you watch it because they themselves are so cool and so likable. They're as you might listen to Rush and think they're pretentious. They're the all. least pretentious well, guys in the world. Yeah, yeah, they're very Canadian. You just watch it, and you're like Jesus Christ. You know, I would <laughs> you know, even if you fucking hate their music, you'll think I want to hang out with these guys. All right. Well, you know what? Let me rephrase. <laughs> now that now that you're making me think about it, <clears throat> I I rescind. I hate Rush. I will say that I hate Tom Sawyer. I'm sick of that fucking song. If I never hear it again for the rest of my life, it'll be too soon. I do like some of their music. Not all of it. I like a lot of it. Because I know if Jesse Krakow is listening, I know <laughs> that there are other people who are going to be like, "What the hell? I thought you were cool, Crystal." I still am cool, but you know. I can only take but so much of Rush. Right. Well, you know, all. Rush, the the liking or disliking Rush, either one can be considered cool because they're very, very uh, they're polarizing. All, they're super polarizing, like raisins and cilantro. Yeah, they so basically it's one of those bands where you can't win. If you're in, in a you know, room full of people and say you like Rush, just as many people are going to look at you like you're a piece of shit right. as there are people who are going to give you a high yes, five. Yes, yeah. exactly. It's the same with Kiss and other bands, you yeah. know. They divide the world. All right, well, that's a good cover. I'm excited to listen to this. When I was a boy, I thought of five times I'd be a man. I'd sit inside a bottle and pretend that I was in a can. In my broken room, I'd sit my mind in an ice cream cone. You can throw me if you want, I'm on my phone and I go boop, bip, bip, boop, bip, bip, yeah. If I don't start crying, it's because that I have got no eyes. 
So, uh, Excellent. All right, so that's the end of that one. All right. Um, this came across my random playlist on uh, iTunes the other day when I was on the train. The song is Don't Let Me Be Misunderstood. The original version was done by the animals, as everybody should know. I'm sure everybody's heard it. But the cover, really good cover, is Nina Simone. Have you ever heard that? I haven't heard her version. You know, honestly, I I may even have the record and I don't know it. Now, for as great as the animal song is, um, it sounds very... What's the one? It kind of sounds heartbreaky in a way because it's like pleading, you know, I'm just a soul whose intentions are good. Eric Burden. Yeah. You know, oh, Lord, please don't let me be misunderstood. And then the the arrangement is kind of haunting, like, and it sort of echoey. It's reverby. Yeah. Reverby. Thank you. Um, it's it's a really cool song. Nina Simone takes it to another place because it's her and the piano. And, you know, her voice is deep, and she's singing it like, I don't know, she sort of sounds like, not that she's quite coming out of a cave, but she's, <laughs> she's, ad, she's, she's asking for your forgiveness, but at the same time, she's asking with her fists balled up. You know what I mean? Right, she right. She sounds very like oh, I'm gonna fucking kill you if you don't, <laughs> if you don't understand. You, like stop. You know, it's it's hard to describe, but when you listen to it, you'll get what I'm saying. Well, to be fair, Nina Simone sounds at all times like her fists are balled. balled up. Like you, yes. you, you pretty much you at all times you feel like if you even look at her cross-eyed, she's gonna deck you. Sock you right in the face. <laughs> even if she's singing a tender song, she's <laughs> yeah. got she's got about this much patience. Yes, exactly. <laughs> As as it should be, because she was she had a lot of reasons to be angry. Um, so you know I'm not blaming her, but uh, it's I, I like the cover better than than the original in this case. I really like it, so I think everybody should check it out. Well, I'm I'm looking it up right now because I, again I was unaware of Nina Simone's uh, version. I guess from 1964, Four, yeah, um, from the Broadway Blues Ballads album, which I don't think I. Have. have that one? Oh. Yeah, so I definitely haven't heard it. Yeah, man, you gotta check that shit out. And here it is now, you can listen to it. Baby, do you understand me now? Sometimes I feel a little mad. But don't you know that no one alive can always be an angel? When things go wrong, I seem to be bad
Okay, so I'm uh, I'm gonna go for another uh, relatively benign one here. I'm gonna save the good ones for later. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is well, this is a song called "Gypsy Woman." Oh, you know, you guys all know the song "Gypsy Woman." It's by the Impressions, and it's, it actually was a 1961 song that that Curtis Mayfield wrote. That I guess it was a single in '61, but it's on there. They didn't have an initial uh, full LP until '63, and it's on that as well. Um, I didn't realize actually until I was going until I went to Wikipedia to kind of look it up that it it had initially come out that early. Oh. I, I just thought it was on the first album and that was that. Oh, okay. But um, the thing is, is that the impressions uh, originally were fronted by a guy named Jerry Butler, and he left, and Curtis Mayfield kind of became the man, and it was. Uh, that's the first song they put out, you know, under the, under, under the thumb, thumb of the great, of the great Sirtis, <laughs> as I was, as a kid, was what I was. Sirtis. Yeah, because I remember, I remember coming Sirtis across Curtis Mayfield, Mayfield records. I, I, you know, I, on my own podcast, I do, I talk about this all the time, about records that I discovered in the apartment mm-hmm. that I don't know who they belonged to or where they came from. They were just there. Yeah. Well, I remember at some point there were Curtis Mayfield records <laughs> in the apartment, <laughs> and I didn't know who he was. And I was like, oh, Sirtis <laughs> Mayfield. <laughs> Well, I don't. I don't know. Why would you? Why as a kid would you think of C as Curtis first rather than Curtis? I don't know. Oh, I guess being stupid that could be it. But mm. um, <laughs> um, but yeah. So, but but it was a number twenty single on the Billboard charts. It was number two on the R and B charts. Surprise, mm. surprise. But so move up to nineteen seventy. I mean, okay, and and I guess I don't know. I guess your your thing is that you tend to describe the the, the versions of the song. Yeah. You know, "Gypsy Woman" is very. It has kind of a Latin feel, doesn't it? It does. Yeah, mm-hmm. a little, a lot of uh, what do you call those things? Like uh, castanets. Castanets. Yes, you exactly. You can imagine a, you can imagine a belly dancer. Yes. When you hear this song, and uh, you know, vocal harmonies because the the impressions were a harmony group, and uh, so you go to 1970 and Brian Highland. Who? What? He had a '60s hit. What was his '60s hit? '60s hit. Um, Though we gotta say goodbye. Was that him? I think so. I should know this, but yeah, I think so. um, I might be wrong about that. So you guys just, you know, excuse me if I am. But in 1970, he had a hit covering that song, produced by Del Shannon, and it was very, very of its time. It had that sort of. You you, you know this version, right, Crystal? It has a very early 70s, well, because when the 70s hit, sounds kind of eased up. A lot of the tension in music kind of released, and everything was just kind of mellow, man. And and, Because in the 60s, even the mellow songs, there were certain chord, uh, there were tensions in the chord and stuff. There were chords. There was like, it's hard to explain, but you know what I mean? But come the 70s, all the tension was kind of ironed out of music, and everything just kind of became easy listening, man. Yeah. And that's kind of how the Brian Hyland version of this song is. It's very, you know, has that California ease to it. Yeah. Blade, wow. Yeah. See, I did not know about that. Now I'm going to have to listen to this. this is yeah. Cool. But, well, this version went to number three in the oh, Billboard charts. Freak out. And, um... That's kind of all I know about that. <laughs> I mean, well, I can say I can say that I knew the Brian Highland version first. Well, that's because I grew up was, in the '70s, and right. we didn't. I may have discovered some Sirtis Mayfield records in, in the uh, <laughs> apartment, but there were no Impressions records, so I didn't have that one. Mm, interesting. Or, or as my friend Sean would say, Insertus. Insertus. <laughs> that's good. That's a good one. I yeah. like that. All right. 
Hope you're learning something out there, kids. From nowhere, through a caravan, around the campfire light. A lovely woman in motion, with hair as dark as night. Her eyes were like that of a cat in the dark. That hypnotized me with love She was a gypsy woman She was a gypsy woman She danced around and round To a guitar melody From the fire her face was all aglow Enchanted me So uh, my next song is a rock and roll classic standard because it was done by a Mr. Elvis Presley first. The song is called Don't Be Cruel. And I've got two covers of this. Only two. Only two. There are like 500 covers. There are like five zillion of them I learned when I was researching this. But I picked the two that I liked, that I liked the most and one is close to the original and the other one is not. So the first one is done by Barbara Lynn. Everybody know about Barbara Lynn? I've never even heard of Barbara Lynn. Okay, Barbara Lynn is this black woman. She's a guitarist, uh, rhythm and blues guitarist, singer, songwriter. She's best known for her song in 1962, uh, You'll Lose a Good Thing. Oh, okay. Does that sound familiar? I do know that. Okay, she's still alive. And if she's playing at a city near you, you need to check her out. Because uh, she's fucking amazing. Uh, she did a cover of Don't Be Cruel uh, years ago when I was in that band. <sighs> what the fuck was that band? Um, Stick Against Stone? No. Um, it was with Lynn and... Uh, oh, good grief. It'll come to me. Anyhow, we sang this song, but we did her version of it. And it's very sparse and very staccato. Because, you know, Elvis is like, you know, don't be as the full band and Scotty and all that stuff. But hers, it's it has women doing the background vocal. So it's like, you know, let's walk to the preacher and tell him say I do. And but it's like, you know, come on here and love me. It's very it's kind of a slow grind in a way. Mm-hmm. But the girls are like, you know, to a heart. That's true. So it's the call and response of that time period. But right. it's it's more seductive, let's say, than Elvis Presley, because Elvis Presley's like, come on, I'm going to shake my hips and come over here and fuck me. But she's like, slow down, baby, you know, don't be cruel to me kind of thing. Well, now, wait, I, I now I'm missing something. Is, is hers the early, the first version or is... No, Elvis is Elvis the first is, is the yeah, first hers version. Is okay. Yeah, hers is a couple years later, not okay. that many. Um, but I really, I hated singing it, but I really like listening to it. Um, and the second cover is done by... 
you probably know this one, Cheap Trick. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that one sucks. It does suck because it's pretty much the exact same arrangement as Elvis's, only with louder guitars because it was Cheap Trick and it was, as opposed to 50s rock and roll, it was, you know, 80s rock and roll. And to me, it was kind of a waste of time. Yeah. Like, why are you even bothering to do this? Because you're doing it pretty much exactly the same. And it's not a good homage. You're not adding anything to it. You're not making it different. You're not making it better. You're just, it seems to me that they, it was a song that they ran during rehearsal. And then one day they're like, oh, let's record it. You know? Yeah. That's what it feels like. It, yeah, it is kind of what it feels like. And, and yeah, I always hated that. There was a video for it and everything. Like, there it's, was like an MTV uh, video yes, for that. Yes, and I just thought, this is stupid. And I'm, I'm, <laughs> I remember my mother saying, why did they do this? <laughs> <laughs> because she liked Cheap Trick. We went to see them together once. Well, you know why they did it, people? Because it was the 80s, and the 80s, the 80s were kind to no one. Yeah. Nobody nobody made a full decade worth of, of good decisions. Okay, everybody, please remember who's talking. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's Paul, and if I didn't mention it in my first podcast, we mentioned it in Paul's podcast where I was a guest. For those of you who don't know, Paul thinks that well, his life ended in a, in a way. A part of him died at 11.59, December 31st, 1979. Yeah, pretty much. A minute before 1980 rang in. Yes, and I've been in mourning since. He's been in mourning ever since. <laughs> so that's why that. And, and then I'll add to this. They also covered Ain't That a Shame. Yes, well, that's the thing, and I think that's actually why they did Don't Be Cruel, because they did Ain't Ain't That a Shame on the Budokan album, Mm -hmm, and that was a big radio hit. Yes. And I think when they did Don't Be Cruel in the 80s, that was a a little bit of a commercial low point for them. Yes. So I think it was probably an act of desperation, this sort of like... Oh well, you know we we had we a hit. We had a hit doing this before, yeah, well, a fifties cover again. before. Let's just do it again, you know. No, and it stinks. And I'll say that the ain't that a shame cover is terrible. I think it's I, again. It's like what are you doing? All you did was you extended the bridge a little bit so that Rick could have a little solo, or I don't know if he did it or if Robin did it. And then the back and forth, the down, down, bump, bump, the, the ending. Yeah. It goes on for two minutes, at least too long. And then it's a bunch of, you know, Japanese kids screaming and yelling in the background. So, because they were live at Budokan. Right. Which is one of the most popular live albums ever recorded, ever, on the planet Earth. And it just, it stinks. So, in that battle, Fats, uh, um... Uh, not Fast Domino, I'm sorry. Uh, I would say Barbara Lynn wins. I mean, I like the Elvis original, but I'm kind of sick of hearing that, and I really love the Barbara Lynn cover. You know I can be found Sitting home all alone If you can't come around Please, please tell the phone Don't be cruel To who hard is true Baby, if I made a man Something I might have said Please don't forget my past The future looks bright ahead Don't be cruel To who heart is true I don't want no other love Baby, it's just you I'm thinking of Mm. I don't stop thinking of me Come on over here and love me 
Don't be cool to a heart that's true. Don't be cruel. We'll go on to uh, we'll go on to the next song, um, which <clears throat> is a song called Rebel Rebel. Yes. Yeah, and uh, some random dude by the name of David Bowie <laughs> did the original version of this in some, 1974. Some nobody. You know, just some some fucked up looking dude with an orange mullet. Kooky eyes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, anyway, so yeah, and he had an album called Diamond Dogs, and Rebel Rebel is, is from that album, and it was a big single. It was like his big final glam single before he uh, became a smooth R&B dude. Yep. And, uh, well... We we've all heard that that song. Like I said, it's kind of it's kind of glammy. It's kind of a little. Everybody knows it. Name that tune. You can name it in two seconds. Yeah. Dan, I mean, even Dan, you know what it is. Right. Yeah. I'm I'm probably wasting podcast time by trying to describe this <laughs> song to is. you. It's like me trying to t- tell you who Elvis Presley <laughs> or the Beatles are. It's like right. we know. We got it. We got it. We got it. Okay. Well, fast forward 1980. Uh oh. <laughs> Oh, no. Uh, somebody you who's not quite as glam, <laughs> who you would probably love. You should you should love this guy. Well, our buddy, Sean Cassidy, did a version. What? On his 1980 album, Wasp, produced by Todd Rundgren. Get the fuck out of here. Yeah, and it's a total... Uh, see, basically, Sean Cassidy made maybe oh two or three uh, teeny bopper albums you know with covers of like to do run run, run and yeah. that kind of shit oh, and um white pants yeah. his 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 last album his final album was in 1980 an album called wasp and he was trying to like he was trying to get cool and he's trying to get with the times and he got todd rundgren in to produce this album for him where he's doing kind of like these fucked up oh, new wavy kind of todd rundgren-esque i can't i can't tracks i can't the opening track is him doing Rebel Rebel with Todd Run- Basically, it's Utopia as his backing band. And it's uh, a kind of... It's two vocals. It's Sean Cassidy doing the low vocal and Todd Rundgren doing the high, high vocal. vocal? Todd, well, Todd Rundgren's doing a really high... Rebel Rebel! And, and, and Sean Cassidy's going, Rebel Rebel! Get out! Yeah. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> I am floored because I never in a million years would have... No fucking way. All right, was nineteen? Was he still in the Hardy Boys? Were they still doing the Hardy Boys? It was just post Hardy Boys. Hardy Boys went from seventy seven to seventy nine. Nine. Okay. You know he wasn't. Oh he was God. at that point where he kind of had nothing to lose. Like his star had fallen by that time. Oh yeah. And you know, just like David Cassidy, they were. You know, they were both in their little tiny teeny bopper Bubbles. box, and that's the way people knew them. But they had interests, yeah. obviously, far outside that. Yeah. And you know, Sean at that point had the opportunities go well fuck i mean nobody buys my records anymore anyway <laughs> I'm so. just gonna, but i need to know i need is there tape is there a written transcript how the fuck did he get todd rungren and utopia to back i this is well, mind-boggling to todd me todd rungren his, i mean i know todd rungren is a kook and he'll do kooky shit yeah but this it's it, like he might as well have called frank zappa and frank zappa was like sure i'll do it like zappa and zappa probably and would have done, done it too it. yeah he totally would have done it <laughs> Oh my God! Wow. Yeah, and but the thing is, is that when Todd Rundgren went into well, that's the thing. Todd Rundgren kind of had two different approaches. A lot of records that he produced, you go in and it's like, okay, yeah, that's just a Todd Rundgren album with this person on vocals. Yeah. But there are other albums like the first New York Dolls. 
Like, if uh, somebody didn't tell you that Todd Runger mm, produced that, you would you never know. know. Yeah. That was one instance where he went, okay, you know what? These guys have their thing I'm down, and go. I'm not getting in the way of it. Yeah. I'm just going to put mics in front of their amps. And let them do and it. And let them do what they do. You know, whereas in the case of Sean Cassidy, yeah, or, you know, there's a Hall & Oates album that he produced. It's basically a Todd oh, Rundgren right. album with that artist on vocals. Yeah. Oh, my God. That's crazy. Yeah. Oh. My jaw hit the floor. I'm <laughs> stupefied by that. And I'm not going to tell you which one I like better of the two. I'm just going to let you guess. <laughs> we'll have to listen to it. I yeah. can't wait to hear this. crazy all right okay that's good that's very good okay um my next song is a uh james bond theme of a movie a james bond movie that i think when it was released i don't think it was that popular i don't think that it was like in the top 10 of bond movies but i think it's because of the time period that it came out and they had switched James Bonds. Um, and the second James Bond was not as popular as the first James Bond. I don't know. But anyway, uh, the song is called live and let die. And, uh, it's the one with Jeffrey Holder in it looking like a weirdo jumping around and, uh, features some black chicks and, you know, it's like voodoo, stuff going on and it's kind of kooky it's actually pretty good it's one of my favorite bond movies but anyhow the theme song is done by paul mccartney and wings or just wings i forget which one it is but you know it's paul mccartney and what (laughs) what i like about this song and what i hate about the song is something that 
you made me acutely aware of years ago, Paul, when we were talking about Paul McCartney and how he writes songs and how one of his songs is like five songs jammed into one song. And this is a prime example of that because it's bombastic, you know, orchestration. And then it's, you know, reggae. And then it's something else. It's like 18 songs crammed into one song. Right. Right. Telling this one particular is not even telling a story, really. Like, the lyrics are kind of... Well, it kind of is, but it's not... Uh, yeah, he doesn't really make his point that well. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of nonsensical. And then, for a Bond theme, that's what really throws you off, because Bond themes, they they tended to stick more to, like, following along the story of what it is. And, of course, they all say the title in the song. But I'm wondering what Paul McCartney was thinking when they were like, hey rock band from the 70s you want to do a james bond theme and of course he's going to say yeah because it's british and all that but um it's just such a weird thing it's just a it's a very weird song right well i think that's probably around the time that began because then it became a thing every single bond movie was a popular rock band Band, right doing songs i was i happened upon somewhere online some millennial was putting out some fucking piece you know on on you know on some website about why Paul McCartney sucked. Ooh, wow! And one of the things he was talking about was how shitty his lyrics are, and his and his example was a line from the song, and so he he <laughs> misquoted the lyric, and he mis uh, he misquoted it as. He goes, yeah, he wrote this, in Live and Let Die, he says, in this ever-changing world in which we live in. And I laughed so hard because it's like, yeah, you're right. If that was the lyric, you would, I would, you would have a great point. But the way he quoted it, there are like 15 ins in the line. Oh, 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 I see. In this ever-changing world in which we live in. in yeah. And that's not, that's not that's what not it, it is. It's, um, it's the line is, but if this ever-changing world in which we're living... Yes, makes you makes give us it a try. Give in and, but I, <laughs> so every time I hear that song, I hear it as in this ever changing world in which, which we, we live, live in. in. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, is that that qualifies as a Mondegreen? I guess it's a Mondegreen of, of sorts. Yeah, uh, yeah, definitely. Because I know, yeah, people. I've heard people sing that wrong. I mean, a that sounds times, like that's what and you it say. does sound like it if yeah. you don't pay attention. True, if you don't pay attention, but you know, and it's 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 rocking. It's 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 a weird song. Anyhow, the cover that I'm going to talk about is done by <laughs> is done by a band who a lot of people said rescued rock and roll in the '80s. Um, it's Guns N' Roses. I mean, I you can hear me not being able to speak. It's yes. it's that bad. <laughs> it's just it's that awful. bad. It it's it's awful. I don't know what he they were thinking because I'm sure Axel was like, "Ah, live and let die. Let's do it," and everybody else was nodding out. So they're like, "Oh yeah, we can learn it." So they, it's just it's just terrible. It they don't add anything to it except he's screaming. They don't change an arrangement. They don't. It's a hard rock version of the song, uh, kinda. And I guess that he, ugh, it's just, yeah, it's terrible. It's really bad. Yeah. Well, those guys had exactly one album in them, and then it became such a huge thing, and Axel decided he was like an artiste. Uh, right, you know. Because I'll give it up to you, Axel, for Cold November Rain, 
and I'll give it up to you for being a big Elton John fan and wanting to emulate him and do the best you can and all that jazz. But this, big thumbs down. It just, it stinks. It stinks on ice. It's terrible. I hate it. So, you know, if you're a big GNR fan, come at me, bro. <laughs> You'd have to agree with me. It's terrible. It just sucks. When you were young and your heart was an open book You used to say, live and let live You know you did, you know you did, you know you did But if this ever-changing world in which we live in makes you Live and let die So uh, this is this is uh, this this isn't one of my my mind blowers here. This this is I'm back to the benign here. We're going we're gonna <laughs> we're just gonna kind of go up. It's gonna it's a roller coaster ride, people. You just strap yourself just, in. Just roll with us. <laughs> just roll with it. Okay, so this is a song called "Without You." Oh, this was on my list. I was gonna do this today. Oh, were you? Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, so so without you, as very 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 few people probably know. Is uh, was originally done by Badfinger, and they they originally did it on their 1970 album No Dice, and it's 
it, it's a really lame version. I don't. I, I think their version is super lame. It is very lame. It sounds like I can't remember. Was this right before they ended? No, it's their second album. No Dice is their second album. It's before their their major classic, uh, Straight Up, which okay. is the third album. Yeah. Well, he sounds pathetic when he's singing it, and they they sound like they're not really into it. Yes, it's very. It's exactly. It's very phoned in. Yeah. It's and the chorus in. is really. Uh, well, like the word used earlier, it's staccato. It's, I can't live if living is without you. Like, they don't, there's no... There's no emotion. No passion or emotion in the course at no, all. it's bad. Which is fucking key to the cover version of this. Uh-huh. And the cover version is by Harry Nilsson, mm. which he did it the following year in 1971 for his... his Huge Nilsson Schmilson album, Schmilson. the one that has on the front cover. He's in a he's in a bathrobe. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, what are you doing? Yeah, yeah. Ooh, and, is and, that yeah? Yeah, yeah. And and the Crazy. and the font, the text is an homage to Pet Sounds. Yes, and that's what made me think like Brian Wilson bathrobe, Harry Nilsson. Yeah, bathrobe. He's, Nilsson he's, Wilson Schmilson. Hmm. Wilson Nilsson Schmilson. Yes. Well, so yeah, so Harry Nilsson did a cover of the song. Well, I guess the the story goes that. Nilsson was at a party where somebody w- where that song came on. It was just the music in the room was playing and the Bad Finger version came on. And this I don't get, but he thought it was the Beatles. <laughs> he did? Yeah, and I don't get that one because he was a big Beatles fan. Ben, yeah. And at that point he fucking knew the Beatles. How the fuck could he you possibly think... think that was them? Oh, he must have been really So high. he was just wasted. But he liked the song, and he, he saw the potential in the song, so he did it on his next album and actually turned it into something. Yeah. Like, in the you know, the way he did the chorus is kind of... Well, the whole song is is really dramatic, but the way he did the chorus is what makes the song. song. Yeah, that's true. You know, because cause the verses are very understated and very... Just like, just a little tinkling little piano yeah, and a yeah. really nice little... I can't forget, you know? Yes. And then the, it's like it's like the first power ballad because it's that sort of like soft, uh, like I said, the soft little verses, and then it just comes in like gangbusters and wails and wails on the chorus, you know, and it has kind of has a big beat. And there wasn't really a lot of that before that song. That that song kind of started. That song invented the power, power ballad of the '80s, <laughs> or that version of the song. That version of the song. Well, I can't forget this evening and your face when you were leaving. But I guess that's just the way the story goes. You always smile, but in your eyes, your sorrow shows. Yes, it shows. Well, I can't forget tomorrow When I think of all my sorrow I had you there, then I let you go And now it's only fair that I should let you know What you should know
people I know would not know about this cover <laughs> of that song because it was done by a one Mariah Carey. Oh. Did you know yes, I'm, I think I was aware of this. I kind yeah. of blocked it out, but I'm... Well, before we go further with that, I will say that this song was covered by over 180 artists. 180? See, I would have guessed like 500 people. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, yeah, but, uh, so fuck you, Mariah Carey. <laughs> so fuck you. You're just one of 180 people. Ah, <laughs> go to hell. Um, <clears throat> that's a good one, though. That is a good one. Okay. I like it. Well, now that I'm on this Mariah Carey jag. Oh, shit. <laughs> Don't bring it. <laughs> <laughs> I have to bring it. And I think that you might know about this one. Um, you never know. Oh, you know what? I think I know what it is. And if it is, I do. Yeah, you Yeah, you know about this. So <clears throat> the song is a, as Paul described, it's an 80s power ballad. And uh, everybody knows it. You hear it at strip clubs. It's on jukeboxes. Um, it's everywhere. And the song is done by Def Leppard. You know what? I don't know where you're going at all. Oh, okay. So the song was done by Def Leppard, and it's called Bringing on the Heartache. I am completely unaware of her version of that. She did a ridiculous cover of this song. See, I, I thought you were going J5 on this. Oh, oh I didn't even think about that. No. No. Yeah, but no, no, no. This is this is way better. Okay, I had no this idea. This is way better. And when you hear the Mariah Carey version, you're not quite sure what is happening. You know, because the original version is... It's like loud guitar right off the bat. Yeah. But with her, it's, it's Mariah Carey, so it's Vaseline on the lens. It's cheesecloth in front of the lens. It's soft. And, the, you know, if you don't know the Def Leppard song then you don't know what this is. 
But if you are, uh, you know, acutely aware of it, then you're just like, wait a minute, what is happening here? And then she starts singing it, and it's like, the super soft, whispery voice. Does she dog whistle at any point? She does dog whistle a little bit, I think, toward the end, if <laughs> I remember correctly. She's always got to do that She's to show always, you that she can. That she can. But, you know, sorry, Minnie, Rip- Minnie Ripperton did it first. Exactly. So, fuck you, Mariah Carey. Um, yeah. But, you know, she's like, bring it on the heartache. So it's this sort of R&B-ish sort of deal. Uh, but I, I like it. I think it's a very interesting choice for her. I wonder who suggested it. I mean, I wonder if she chose that or if somebody brought it to her and said, hey, you should do this. I think that she chose it because those of us who know Mimi, we know that she will step out of her box at times, like in the beginning of her career, I guess when she was still with Tommy Mottola, where she, uh, well, no, it was after she broke out. And she got after old, she didn't need him anymore. After she didn't need him anymore. She got uh, old dirty bastard to sing with her, and everybody was like, "What? You know, old dirty bastard with Mariah Carey? That's insanity!" But it totally worked because she wanted to have a hip hop element and be more street, and it made perfect sense. And he was like, "Oh, Mariah, I'm on fire, rah rah rah!" You know, and she's like, Ooh, yeah. "Yeah," and uh, it was pretty funny. Yeah, like Sean so, Cassidy doing Rebel Rebel. Anyway. Uh, yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, um, so yeah, how, how about them apples? Yeah, yeah I, I done been schooled. I was utterly unaware of that, and uh, thankfully so. Yeah. <laughs> but you're going to have to listen to it because, yeah. <laughs> yeah. A little bit of a it. A little anyway. bit. I, well, this could be one of the ones I don't put on. No, I, no, I will because I, I'm afraid I'm morbidly curious. <laughs> <laughs> and surprisingly, a lot of metalheads I know know about the Mariah Carey version, and some of them even like it. Ah, well, what do metalheads know? Uh, well, they know some. <laughs> but yeah, how about that? How about that? That's a good one, right? sitting, looking pretty.
Okay, so my, my, my last one for the episode here is, uh, what's well, a song called Saturday in the Park? Ooh. Yeah, so anybody who grew up in the 70s has, that this, this song is a, is a big part of their childhood. Ubiquitous. It's ubiquitous. On AM and FM radio. Yes, and the band Chicago, who originally did it, who wrote it, Robert Lamb, uh, this was from 1972, the Chicago 5 album. And, of course, they had 18,000 giant hits in the 70s <laughs> yes. that, that you would know if you grew up then. And, uh, well, I don't know if there are a lot of covers of this song, but there is one that I'm aware of that is, uh, well, by the Brady Bunch. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's the- me falling on the floor. Yeah, so the Brady kids... Say what? Yes, the Brady kids made records in 72, 73. They were Brady kids albums, and there were some songs that were specifically for them, that were written for them. Yeah, that kind of shit. But there were covers, like they did American Pie. They what? They did Day After Day, Day by Badfinger. What? And they did... Saturday in the Park by Chicago. <laughs> oh my God! And it sounds just like what it is. It sound you listen to it, and you're like, yeah, this sounds like an outtake from the eps- from the Brady episode is where it- they sing. Like this is the Brady bunch fucking singing Same. Saturday in the Park. Oh my God! The <laughs> who? What? Wait. Yeah. So what I need to know is, I mean, for all of their stuff, now I'm wondering. Who was the ba- who who was the band? Who were the musicians? Were they just session dudes? Like they didn't call the Wrecking Crew, but like who the hell? Yeah, who was behind who all was this? Behind all this? Who is to blame for this? Who is to blame for this? Who 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 was the rec- What was the record label that they were on? Like they who- were on uh, Paramount. Paramount. Paramount so had Dunker. a label, and of course, Paramount Studios is where they did the show. show right. So it was all kind of under the same little. Because I umbrella. for a second I flashed. I thought, did Don Kirshner have anything to do with this? <laughs> Wow. Out of desperation. Out of de- <laughs> yeah, since he was a pariah. Yeah, well, he was in his post-monkeys non-glory yeah. before he came up with the great idea of having a TV show. Don Kirshner's rock concert was a good show. Yeah, in fact, that's where I first heard his name. Oh, really? Yeah. I, I mean, I remember reading on records before his show, but, I mean, it was no Midnight Special, but it was still good. Yeah. For those of you other old people out there who... Remember Don Kirshner's rock concert and the Midnight Special. There were these, well, those of you who don't, rather, uh, there were these shows that came on late at night. It was either Friday or Saturday. I'm trying to remember if Midnight Special came on after Saturday Night Live went off. Like yeah, I don't 75, remember. 76 or something. Because um, I used to watch Saturday Night Live with my mom. But they, it was a show where they had all the acts of the day, the big acts of the day. And they either had, they showed a video of them, 
or they were performing in a studio, or it was live somewhere. Usually, often it was Usually live, it was and that's, live. that's the thing, kids. It was this weird thing that old people used to do. <laughs> <laughs> play actual instruments. Yes, in front of people. And it's stuff that they themselves wrote even. Yeah. Not not like go, oh, I like that from that record and like playing it and then doing shit over it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, again, old people old shit. Old people stuff, old people shit. And it was fantastic because this Midnight Special, that was the first time I saw Todd Rundgren. Oh, because that's when he came out dressed like yeah, a fucking the, peacock. With the feathers and everything. <laughs> and the killer, and this is the other great thing about the olden days, was that the Four Tops introduced him. Yes. Oh, well, yeah. Well, I, I didn't see that when it aired, but I have seen it. Well, watch the YouTube video because uh, I forget which one is, is talking, doing all the talking. I mean, they're all standing around in their denim vests with, <laughs> with studs on it and stuff. And it's like, oh, yeah. And the, the, he's obviously reading a cue card. And he's like, yes. And here is a young man who writes and produces and plays all of his own music, something along those lines. Right. Uh, to- Mr. Todd R- Rundgren, you know. Yeah. And then it's kind of canned applause. But the hosts were always terrible on those shows. Because they were real musicians who were not supposed to be hosting That wasn't anything. their job. Yeah, they weren't the peop- kind of people who did that normally. Who did yeah. that. And, I mean, you know, then they got Wolfman Jack, who was a radio DJ and was used to announcing records and was... <laughs> so he could come up there and do his little spiel and make it cool. But otherwise, it was... You know, like the four tops just got off stage and they're introducing Todd Rundgren and then he's live somewhere else and recorded and oh man, it, it was must so have been good. a mess to put together. I can't even. It, imagine. I can't. I can't even fathom arranging that shit, being the director of that show. But and Don Kirshner decided to do the same thing. Don Kirshner's rock concert, and now I'm trying to delineate. You know, like. They both had the same acts. It wasn't like one was more this and the other was more that either. It was kind of two of the same thing. Well, yeah, yeah. And that's the thing. Things weren't as segmented. Is that the word? Like, they basically, yeah. uh, radio stations, TV shows that featured music, it wasn't like, well, this is the soul one and this is the rock, rock one. one. It's like, it yeah. was just popular music, it was, period. It, that was how radio was. Like, yeah. yeah, there were soul stations and there were, you know, that sort of delineation because that's just the history of America. But... You know, you turn on your AM or your FM radio and you hear all kinds of acts singing all kinds of music of people of all kinds of colors. And it was just good music and it didn't matter. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, so. like I've said before, you turn on the radio and you hear Aerosmith and then you heard Earth, Wind & Fire. It's just, you know, on right the same station. The same and station. you didn't think anything of it. You didn't go, whoa, wait, that's, that's a, that was a... Yeah, that can't be right. Why yeah, are they yeah. on the same station? The that makes no was, sense to man. me. Yeah, that's good. Oh, well, you know, and I've told you this before... As Todd Rundgren, he came out and he he wore this crazy ass <laughs> outfit to do to, to was, sing "Hello, It's it was me. me" at the piano <laughs> at the piano, sort of looking at the camera. Yeah, and full makeup, crazy feathered eyelashes, like beyond sh- Bowie, yeah, beyond Lady Gaga. Oh outfit, my God, like and, beyond uh, Kiss almost. And because uh, Brian Eno had a similar outfit when he was in um, what you call it, Roxy Music. Right, sort of, just yeah. like yeah, like bird feathers, silver lamé, all kinds of crazy something. shit. Yeah. Well, okay, so fast forward about yeah, maybe eleven or twelve years ago or so, Todd Rundgren did a uh, did a tour where he was doing his A Wizard of True Star album in its entirety live. Really? And he did it. It was fucking crazy. He. And that album is continuous play. There's no break yeah. between songs, and that's how they played it. And it was so perfectly choreographed, 
because Todd would go off stage and change outfits for almost every song. <laughs> so he somehow managed to, to play this album in its entirety, nonstop, as it is on the record, and get off stage and do costume changes and, and come, come out. There was one song that, that, that um, oh, Chasm Sultan from Utopia sang just because there was no way they were going to be able to... He couldn't get out in time for that song, but otherwise he, he, he was able to do it. But on one song, he came out wearing the outfit from no way yes the peacock outfit oh it was it God. was a it wasn't the original one because he's not as he's not a, a yeah. real thin person like he that he was then yeah and uh, but yeah he came out in like a new version of that and i was just like holy <laughs> shit <laughs> <laughs> that is incredible yeah wow wow when did that happen 2008 or 9 So I guess this is my last song. And uh, this I consider, well, it's just fucking great. It's been on my mind because uh, F-Bomb, which I don't think I explained last time or explained it on your show. So we're here in New York City, everybody. And there is this conciliary of metalheads, that's what I call them, uh, led by a one Morgan Liebman who started this uh, show of cover versions, cover songs, called F-Bomb. It's been running for 15 years, and last Saturday... Last Saturday? Yes. Yeah. Last Saturday, uh, we did the 150th show of this. He's been doing it for like 15 years. 15 years. And initially, I, I should point out, it's it was kind of like the, the Heavy Metal Losers Lounge. Yes. But it's, it's kind of grown past that. It isn't just metal. Yeah, it's not metal anymore. Um, 
And we did the Beatles because it's Morgan's favorite band and he wanted to do the salute. So normally we do two sets of music, but last Saturday we did four sets that ran from 10.30 at night until 3.30 in the morning. It was after 3 a.m. It was late. But it was it was really great. It was a lot of fun. So it took up a lot of time. Uh, I, I was in two different sets, right? I did two different sets. How many did... I did all four. All four. Uh, <clears throat> but the last set, set four, I also produced. So I picked the band and chose the singers to the songs. I curated it, and I hate saying that word in this context, but that's what I did. (laughs) That's what happened. And uh, it was a lot of fun. So learning the songs that I had to do and working with my band and blah, 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 I just started listening to a lot of cover versions of the Beatles to, you know, lighten my load a little bit. And one of them is one of my all-time favorite Beatles songs, and I also enjoy this cover. And... I listened to it as a kid a lot and then forgot about it for a million years. And then speaking of Loser's Lounge, when I did Loser's Lounge, it was 2011. Uh, It was Queen. And this is what they're doing this weekend, as a matter of fact. Yes. Um, Anyway, I'm backstage and Ira Sebastian Elliott from Not A Surf was playing drums instead of Clem. And we're backstage. Oh, because we did it at Joe's Pub and then we did an encore at the Gramercy Theater. So we're backstage hanging out, and Ira has a little speaker for his iPhone or whatever, and the song comes on, and we were both commiserated over how great this cover was and how often we listened to it when we were kids and da-da-da-da, and I was like, oh, holy shit, and then that's when we talked about our love for The Who, and I got him to be my drummer for my Who band. But anyway, uh, the song is called We Can Work It Out, and why I love the Beatles original is because it uses... Uh, a lot of accordion in it where you wouldn't think to put it in as an arrangement. Yeah, you like have almost, to wonder why that came up. Well, how did that even happen? Like, it, yeah. if you said, oh, yeah, there's this really cool Beatles song with an accordion in it, and you'd be like, what are you talking about? An yeah. accordion? Yeah, on they, paper, it sounds pretty lame. It sounds lame, yeah. but it sounds really great in the song. It fits in perfectly. You know, who knows what Paul McCartney is thinking out there in his cottage doing things. So uh, <clears throat> it's a really great song. And it's about, you know, we've got our differences, but we can work it out. But the cover, the cover, oh, it's so good. And it takes uh, another meaning because of the time period that it was made and who's singing it. So it's by Stevie Wonder. And have you heard this, Paul? Oh, God, yeah. Yeah. So what's really great about the cover is that it's fucking Stevie Wonder. Yeah. <laughs> and it's soulful, and it becomes about race relations as opposed to we're having an argument with each other over tea. Right. And, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, no, cut the crusts off the watercress sandwich. No, I want them on the watercress sandwich. That's what Paul McCartney was singing about. Stevie Wonder's singing about civil rights. You know, it's like, come on, white folks, we can work it out. And he's just like, oh, you know, and the tambourine and da-da-da-da-da. And ugh, it's just so great. If you haven't heard it, you have to listen to it. Cause it's, it's distinctly his pre-70s uh, uh, style. It's that it's that Motowny before he really broke out, out. Yeah. kind of style. Yes, before he did his amazing song cycle of those albums. And yeah. It's much more just, upbeat than the Beatles version. Yes, it's right on the precipice of all that stuff. Like, you can tell where he was going mentally with his sound and his style. Yeah. Um, but it does it justice... Uh, but if there's a battle between the two, I'd have to give it to Stevie Wonder. 
I love the original, but Stevie Wonder just takes it to a whole other, a whole other place. Try to see it my way. Do I have to keep on talking till I can go on? While you see it your way, run the risk of knowing that our love may soon be gone. We can work it out. We can work it out. Think of what you're saying. You can get it wrong and still you think that it's all right. Think of what I'm saying. We can work it out and get it straight. I'll say goodnight. We can work it out. We can work it out. Life is very short. I guess that is it. This is the end of episode number two. I appreciate everybody listening. Thank you very much, Paul, for being my guest. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> you're here. It's, 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 it's the least I could do for, for like do. from like standing here already. Anyway, you know? <laughs> right? Yes, because for those of you who don't know, Paul is my engineer for this because I do not have the aptitude to do these things on my own. And uh, I really appreciate his hard work and effort because he's slaving over a computer, putting this stuff together and putting these songs back to back, listening to songs that he doesn't want to listen to. So (laughs) the next time you see Paul in person, thank him for his service because it's I couldn't do it without him. And it's really important. So that's episode number two. While I'm here and it took me 18 days to get here because of the MTA. Fuck you. Uh, I'm going to record episode number three. But, oh, which reminds me. So people who listened to episode one and who emailed me and texted me and called me, um, I'm going to do these twice a month because it's too much to do every week. I really don't have that kind of time. And if I did it every week, I would blow through the 800 songs that I have a list of. So I think it's better to do it biweekly. Well, also, that would uh, that minimizes how often you have to deal with the MTA getting down to getting, Brooklyn because it's, it's a shit show every week. It's crazy. It's Saturday. It's Saturday, April the 6th, and uh, I live in Harlem, and Paul lives here in Crooklyn. And 
the G train stopped somewhere and I had to get on a shuttle bus. <laughs> and every time I looked up the best way to get here, they told me to take the L train to get on some other local bus. And I wasn't sure if it would get me here. I was nervous, uh, you know. And then Paul said, well, you see why I never leave my apartment during the weekends, which when I lived here in Brooklyn, I didn't same leave deal. here. It was the same deal. <laughs> if there's something going on, oh, Harlem, I ain't going up there. The trains are fucked up. And that was, you know... 16 years ago or whatever it was when I lived out here. So thank you everybody for listening. Is there anything else I have to say? Did I forget anything? I'm going to do it bi-weekly. We did the show. MTA sucks. I think that covers it. Yeah. Alright, well thank you for listening everybody and stay tuned for episode three in another two weeks at the end of the month. Happy motoring. Happy motoring.